I'm not going to bring a text, so you can just go sit down, Sister Morgan. Otherwise, you'll be up here for 15 minutes. <laughs> it's always a privilege to be able to stand before you and to declare, thus says the word of the Lord. It's a blessing and a privilege to be a minister of the gospel. It's where we get the word administer. As it's, as, it's as if to be like a doctor or a nurse administering a medicine or a servant administering the goods of the craftsman. And the minister's finest duty is to declare the gospel of Christ. This book is the most important book in the English language. The Bible is one of the most impressive, I would say the most impressive works of literature in the human history. The number of copies and manuscripts that we have of the Bible vastly outweigh any other book of antiquity. <clears throat> the Lord promised to preserve his word and he has done so. And the journey of our English Bible arguably began with a monk grabbing a hammer and nailing his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door. And it started a revolution. <clears throat> and they say many would gather in the White Horse Tavern to discuss ideas and theology. And, and it's very likely that at this point, one such student at Cambridge, William Tyndale, embarked on his life's mission to make the Bible accessible to the common man. He wanted the Bible to be read in the language of the people. I'm quoting from John Piper, who pulls from the historian David Donnell's biography of William Tyndale. So when he was 28 years old in 1522, he was serving as a tutor in the home of John Walsh in Gloucestershire, spending most of his time studying Erasmus's Greek New Testament, which had just been printed six years before in 1516. And we should pause here and make clear what an incendiary thing this Greek New Testament was in history. David Donnell describes that this was the first time that the Greek New Testament had been printed. It's no exaggeration to say that it set fire to Europe. Martin Luther translated it into his famous German version of scripture in 1522, and in a few years thereafter, translations from Greek into most European vernaculars. They were the true basis of the popular Reformation. Every day, William Tyndale was seeing these Reformation truths more clearly in the Greek New Testament as an ordained Catholic priest. Increasingly, he was making himself suspect in the, in the Catholic house of John Walsh. Learned men would come for dinner, and Tyndale would discuss the things he was seeing in the New Testament. And John Fox tells us that one day, an exasperated Catholic scholar at dinner with Tyndale said, we were better, it's better to be without God's laws than the Pope's. And in response, Tyndale spoke his famous words, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare me my many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scripture than you do. Four years later, Tyndale finished the English translation of his Greek New Testament in Worms, in Worms Germany, and began to smuggle it into England in bales of cloth. <clears throat> by October of 1526, the book had been banned by Bishop Tunstall in London, but the print run was at least 3,000 and the books were getting to the people. Over the next eight years, five pirated editions were printed as well. In 1534, Tyndale published a revised New Testament, having learned Hebrew in the meantime, probably in Germany, which helped him better understand the connections between the Old and New Testaments. Donnell calls this 1534 New Testament the glory of his life's work. If Tyndale was always singing one note, it was the crescendo of his life's song, the finished and refined New Testament in English. For the first time ever in history, the Greek New Testament was translated into English, 
And for the first time ever, the New Testament in English was available in a printed form. Before that, all that they had, if it was in English, were just copied manuscripts that were kept in the ivory towers where the monks would copy them. <clears throat> Before Tyndale, there were only handwritten manuscripts of the Bible in English. These manuscripts we owe to the work and inspiration of John Wycliffe and the Lollards from, from 130 years earlier. But for a thousand years, the only translation of the Greek and Hebrew Bible was the Latin Vulgate, and the few people who could understand, and few people could understand it even if they had access to it. Before he was martyred in 1536 by the Catholic Church, Tyndale had translated into clear, common English not only the New Testament, but also the Pentateuch, Joshua to Second Chronicles, and Jonah. And all this material became the basis of the great Bible issued by Miles Coverdale in England and the basis for the Geneva Bible published in 1557, 18, oh, excuse me, which sold over a million copies between 1560 and 1640. And so the Bible that Tyn <clears throat> Tyndale's translation was so good that basically nearly everything he translated ended up making it into the King James Version anyway. Nobody had any corrections or anything to make. We hold in our hands a great treasure, this Word of God. It's a treasure that many men from throughout the ages clung to with their lives and died so that the Word of God might live. Charles Spurgeon said, If I do not believe in the infallibility of Scripture, the absolute infallibility of it from cover to cover, I would never enter this pulpit again. And so it is with me. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The wise man built his house upon the rock and the foolish man built his house on sand. The only difference between the two men in the parable is Jesus is the foundation that the wise man built his life upon. The only difference is the foundation. I've built my life on Jesus and on the word of God. Psalms 12 verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure, refined seven times. That is to say it is refined to absolute perfection. Psalms 119, 140 said, Your word is very pure. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is tested. There that word tested means that is to be put in the fire, as to refine silver and gold, and no impurities remain. It is the pure and precious gold of the word of God. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Truth is the way that things really are, not the way which our culture or our population says things are, but truth is reality, and his word is true, and sin is whatever God says that sin is, and salvation is whatever God says salvation is, and holiness is whatever God says holiness is, and heaven and hell are what God say that they are. God cannot lie. The word says that he cannot lie. There are things that God cannot do. Whatever he says is the truth. James 1.25 calls the word of God. It says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. The perfect law. 1 Peter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. Stephen Lawson said it this way, he said, because the word of God is inerrant, it is therefore by necessity invincible. And because it is therefore absolutely pure, it is therefore absolutely powerful. It is able to do 
what it claims to do. It is incapable or it is incapable of being overcome or subdued. Such is the supernatural power of the word of God. And so I want to leave you with this outline from Stephen Lawson's seven symbols of sacred scripture. Number one, it is a sword that pierces. It's not a Q-tip that tickles. It is not a feather. It is Hebrews 4 chapter, or Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So what is the Bible? The Bible, it is the divine word. It is the word of God. It is not the word of man. It is not the word of society. It is not the word of tradition. It is not the word of religion. It is the word of God. It has come down to us from above. It has not originated with us or in this world. It has come down from the throne of God above. And it is, notice, the living word. The order of words in the original language, if you translate them literally, it says, living for the word of God is. The placement of the word living is put in the emphatic position. It's as if the writer of Hebrews is highlighting that the word of God is living. This is not just a collection of ancient texts. It is a living book. Martin Luther said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. No other book we read will be able to measure up to the word of God because the words of men are dead and they are stationary, but the word of God is living and it is active. And surely this book has laid hold of many of us. I remember the first time that I opened a Bible for myself. My grandparents gave me a Bible that I don't have anymore, unfortunately. It's this little thin-lined King James Version Bible that they gave me in 2004. And somewhere around age 11, I decided to open it for myself and I began to read it, and it was as if light bulbs started going off. It was as if words were jumping off the page at me. <clears throat> it was the word of God that reached out and grabbed a hold of me. I began to dive into the word. I had a hunger for his word. Prior to that, I had been a Bible quizzer. I had memorized the word. I had, I had done memory verses in Sunday school, but this was different. Something, it, it'd been, I just don't know how else to describe it other than the words were leaping off the page at me. It was the word of God that reached out and grabbed hold of me. And from that moment forward, God has been calling me and has been directing me. The Buddha's words can't do that. Muhammad's words can't do that. The words of the Stoic philosophers or the, any other philosophers can't do that because the word of God is the word of one who spoke the whole of creation into existence. And that same creative regenerative power is in his word that he left for us to read and to know. And then notice the word is active. The word there is, the Greek word is where we get the word energetic. It's energesis. The Bible is full of energy. Now, this book is never flat. If you think it's flat, you just probably don't have a great teacher. This is not a flat, there's not a flat book in here. There's not a dull chapter. There is not a <clears throat> unsharpened verse. Every verse is razor sharp and able to make a penetrating cut. You may think that you have us fooled, and you may think that you have your family fooled, and that you have your spouse fooled, but when you open up the word, you find that God's word will cut you directly 
And you may even feel wounded by his word because it cuts sharply judging the thoughts and intents of men. The Bible says dividing the soul and spirit. It is sharper than every surgeon's scalpel. It plunges to the depths of the heart. It does not inflict a mere flesh wound, but it slices and it penetrates. It gets so deep that it is able to judge the thoughts of our heart, the secret part of a person. The Word of God is able to judge. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. God is able to critique. That's what the word in the Greek there literally means, to critique the human heart. Paul calls the Word of God the sword of the Spirit, and we should never live our lives unarmed. Verse 13, and no creature is hidden from his sight. No one is able to hide from him who speaks these powerful words. No one is able to hide from his sight. He sees us laid bare. All things are laid open. He sees into the inner heart before the sharp word dives in to lay it bare for ourselves. We are able through the word of God to see something of what God sees when he lays bare our thoughts, our attitudes, and our intentions. The word there, open, is the Greek gymnos, which the Greek gyms, they would strip all of their clothes to practice athletics because they wanted nothing hindering them and they wanted nothing holding them back. That's what that word open means. It means to be bare. The word of God strips us down and lays us bare before a holy God. And we are able to see ourselves as God sees us. The word of God strips away all cover-ups, it strips away all excuses. And it strips away all fig leaves. Laid bare in the Greek is an interesting word. It's trachalypso. It's where we you might think of the word tracheotomy. That's where that word comes from. It literally means to grab by the neck to expose the throat for a killing. The word of God renders the death blow. It kills pride. It kills flattery. It kills self-sufficiency. Laid bare, one way you might read that is laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. We must answer to him and his word leaves us with no room for excuses. His word leaves us with no room for, for unright our, our righteousness is as filthy rags before him. But I need his word to expose my heart. For the scalpel of the word of God to give me a heart surgery, to remove the stony heart and give me a new heart. Acts 2.37, Peter's preaching and he ends his sermon and it says they were pierced in their hearts. And it was Peter on the day of Pentecost who quoted sacred scripture that spoke of Messiah making thrusts with the word of God, with that sword of the spirit. He did not flatter them, and he did not engage them in weak, small, good, small group, feel-good tactics, but he brought them to bear on them the whole counsel of God. Peter did not massage their egos that day, but he pierced their hearts. Put down the plastic forks, put down the butter knives, and pick up the perfect sword, the Word of God. Number two, the Word of God is a mirror that reveals. Once the heart is opened up, now the mirror is held up. James 1.23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. A mirror gives a true reflection. 
It shows us who we really are. People will flatter us. Our egos are very massageable. We are too easily filled up with pride. We are too easily lulled into a sense of comfort that we are set, that we are good to go. I don't need to do anything else. I don't need to learn anymore. I know all that I need to know. And it looks, but this mirror exposes who we really are. That before God, all our righteousness and all our accomplishments are like filthy rags before the holiness of him. It looks good to us. It looks suitable to our families. It looks suitable to our spouse. But before God, we are laid bare and cut open and made to see for ourselves who we really are, weak creatures in need of a strong God. And no one will ever be saved unless they see for themselves who they truly are. And no one will be continually sanctified unless they look into the perfect law of liberty. Where does there need to be repentance? Where does there need to be improvements? Where does there need to be mid-course corrections? Do not become out of sync with the word of God. Do not focus on man's maps and charts to navigate the waters of life. But use the word of God that is steady, that is perfect, and that is always available. Christ was perfectly patient. Do you need patience? Christ was perfect peace. Do you need peace? Hold up the mirror. See for yourself your need of him. For in our weakness, his strength is perfected. Number three, the word is a seed. 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable seed, that is through the living and enduring word of God. You have been born again. The new birth is the life of God in the soul of a man. A person becomes a new creature, not by works, but by Christ and his Holy Spirit. Heaven comes to us before we ever come to heaven. Notice the negative, the not, not of seed that is perishable. A seed can only produce life after its own kind. Apple seeds produce apple trees. Lemon seeds produce lemon trees. And we are blessed because eternal life is not by a perishable seed, but it is imperishable seed. Within a seed is the ability to reproduce. It is capable of germination. And we have this seed through the enduring word of God. Supernatural life only comes through supernatural seed. It would be easier to produce an oak tree by marbles than for someone to be saved by the planting of the imperishable seed into the prepared soil of their hearts. Luke 8, 11, Jesus talking about the famous parable of the seeds. He said, the seed is the word of God. It is by that eternal, everlasting word of God that we have new birth and thus we have a new life. You reap what you sow and so we must sow the word of God, the imperishable seed that does what no other word of man can do. Spurgeon said, I would rather speak five words out of this book than to speak 50,000 words of the philosophers. If we want revivals, we must revive our reverence for the word of God. If we want conversions, we must put more of God's word into our sermons. In other words, there needs to be less of me and more of him. Number four, the word of God is a milk that nourishes. 1 Peter 2, 2, and like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. We are to never outgrow being like a newborn baby. 
you don't ever outgrow milk. You are to always be craving the word of God like a baby craves milk. To long for, another way to translate that word would be to say to crave or to cry out for the word of God, that pure milk of the word. It is perfect, unvarnished, uncongealed, unexpirable. It is nourishing. It is nourishing to the new believer and it's nourishing to the elder. From top to bottom, young to old, new birthed yesterday and new birthed 50, 20, 50, 70 years ago. The word of God is nourishing to everybody and we must be fed by the word of God. No one's spiritual development will be able to advance beyond our intake of the word of God. And we look second Peter, so that by it, by the word of God, you may grow. The milk of the word produces spiritually strong bones and strong hearts. How shall a young man cleanse his way? How shall an old man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. That word, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Why have I hid his word in my heart? So that I might not sin. If you want to beat temptation, start by studying the word. Start by memorizing the word. It's always interesting to me to notice that Jesus didn't talk philosophy with Satan. Christ didn't argue with Satan. He simply said, thus says the word of God and left it at that. It is the word of God's that we treasure in our heart that enables us to resist the plans of the devil. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3 when he speaks to Satan. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, And he humbled you and let you go hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know in order to make you understand that man shall not live by bread alone but man shall live on everything that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. And so how do we remain humble? How do we remain steadfast in Christ? How do we grow in grace? By the grace of God and by the word of God. Number five, it is a lamp that shines. Psalms 119, 105, one of my favorite verses, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. And we live in a dark world. It has always been dark, but it's becoming darker by the moment. And we need the light to see our way. We need our light to see the bends in the road, the dangers in the ditches, the, the highwaymen that hide in the trees. The word of God illuminates for all the travelers. It is not an option for very few of us, but it is a necessity for every single one of us. And it shines brightest in the darkness. Proverbs 6.23 says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproves the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Psalms 19.8 says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The word of God is what opens the blind eyes. 2 Peter 2, I love this, 17 through 19. 2 Peter 2, verse 17 through 19. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. 
Basically what Peter is saying there is he's saying, I was there when Jesus was transfigured. I was there on the mountain when I, we heard the voice right out of heaven, a voice booming from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He says, and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed than that. It's the word of God. The word of God brings guidance. The word of God illuminates. It opens eyes and it brings clarity. You know, we all want to hear from God. We all want to hear what the Lord has to say to us. And I often wonder if the reason why God doesn't speak more in my life is because I don't read his word more. I don't read what he's already spoken to me. He's written it down. Pastor John MacArthur said that the number one thing people say to him after he preaches is, Oh, now I see. Now I understand. His word is a lamp to our feet. It guides our steps. It guides the path that we walk. Right? That's important that the light, it enters the heart and it shines, but it also must affect the feet. We must live the word. We must walk the word. And the word, is li- oh, the word is what lights us up in the right way. The inerrant word of God gives infallible guidance. The lamp of the word of God lights the narrow way that we walk to heaven. So hold it forward and hold it high. Number six, the word of God is a fire that consumes. Jeremiah 23, 29, the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. This is not a true question. This is a statement. This is the Lord rebuking the false prophets of Jeremiah's day. His word is a fire that consumes and it burns up. And the word of God burns all things that are resistant to his word. In the previous verses, the Lord says, How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart? Jeremiah 5.14, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. His word brings judgment to those who are not hearing his word. You will either be on fire for God or you will be in the fire of God. There does not appear to be an in-between. Yes, the Lord has grace. Yes, the Lord has mercy, but from what? It's mercy from his judgment for our sins. His word is a consuming fire and it will in that day consume all who does not believe and reject it. But his word is a purifying fire. It can burn away the things that we don't need to hold on to. Paul said, let us put aside every weight which doth so easily beset us and run with patience the rates set before us. And then finally, number seven, the word of God is a hammer. Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. The word of God, it's like a sledgehammer. Normal, weak men stand in the pulpit of God, but wield the hammer of the word that shatters self-sufficiency and pride. The hammer that brings men and women in humility before him. We can be stubborn like the false prophets in Jeremiah's days, but no one is too hard to be fully resistant to his word and to his judgment. His word shatters our stony heart. His word brings us to humility before God. 
Sister Worthington, if you would come. This hammer is harder than the thickest forehead. This hammer delivers the death blow to self. It shatters self-reliance and brings us into reliance on him for grace and mercy that we so desperately need. It's very easy for us to think that we have it all together and to think that we are squared away. I'm set. I'm complete. I've, I've arrived. But Paul comes to the end of his life and says, I still press forward for the mark of the high calling. And that when I read the word of God, I see that I still have much to learn. I still have much to measure up to. I don't always love like Jesus loves. I don't always have humility like Christ had humility. But that is the power of the word of God, is that I don't have to lean not to my own understanding. Why don't we stand? And mark not the words of today's thinkers and pop psychology and wield not the dull sticks of pop philosophy and mainstream Christianity. Rather, God would like to have us to look at his word, the word that endures for all generations and speaks to all hearts and minds of men. This, this inexhaustible book that you could study for your entire life and still not have it fully grasped. This inexhaustible book that not only brings clarity, but it brings life and that more abundantly. So wield the sword. Hold up the mirror. Nourish the seed. Let it germinate. Long for the pure milk. Hold forth the lamp of God. Spread the fire of the word of the Lord. Pick up the hammer and let it fly. just a life breather. It became a life giver. You know, there is a, a sect of people that they are, they are guilty of bibliolatry. That is the worship of just the Word. The Word doesn't connect to people Outside, and if it's not here, then it's non-existent. But brother Jonathan said tonight, if you need peace, then you need to look in the Word. If you need to understand what living godly and righteousness is, then you need to 
read in the word, but the things that you don't think transfer and trans, um, transition from biblical things to our modern culture times. Here's this one for you. Noah didn't have a word. Seth didn't have a word. Melchizedek didn't have a word. Abraham didn't have a word. Isaac didn't have a word. Jacob didn't have a word. So therefore, how could they have lived righteously before the eyes of the Lord if they didn't have anything to translate what was righteous in his eyes and righteous in their culture? What a beautiful message tonight. I'm thankful for the word of God. I look forward to getting further and further and further into it through our Wednesday night studies and our Sunday nights uh, and our Tuesday night uh, search for truth. But beyond those nights, it's good for you to sit at home and say, God, speak to me, O Lord. Your word truly is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my Speak to me, oh God. I need, a, I need an answer. God, minister to my soul, oh Lord. Touch the depth of my spirit, oh God. And it's not the preaching of any good tale. It's not the preaching of any good story. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Because in the word is the power to change a life. We're going to come to the altar here in a few moments and we're going to worship and we're going to end the service in a time of consecration and prayer. But if you need a ministry in the Holy Ghost right now, if you need ministry to your spirit by the spoken word of God, you've received a word tonight. You already hold within your hands tonight an answer for you. You just need to get face to face with it. You just need to open it up and get, get in it. And let it reveal the things that you're hiding. Let it reveal the things that you're hiding behind. Let it reveal the things that you're not conforming. Let it reveal the things that you're not letting go. Why don't we close our eyes right now, Lord? I'm asking right now in these next few moments of prayer and consecration. That your word would come into our hearts and our mind and our spirit and quicken us. That two-edged sword that it is, let it divide the bone and the marrow. Let it remove things, oh God, that have joined itself and become cancerous and harmful and not beneficial. Let it nurture us like the sincere milk. Let it burn passionately within us like the fire let it be a mirror let it be a reflection and let us see what needs to be changed let it be a seed that grows 
let it be a hammer that completely destroys things that have become issues in our life. Speak, Lord, now. And let us hear what thus saith the Lord. Why don't we take a few moments and come to these altars tonight? Let us take some time to pray before we leave and dismiss tonight. It's just a Warbington sings. Come.